uh, on a Friday. I'm delighted that you can uh, join us once more for our final show of the week. And it's a special one today. As always, I ask you to get your comments in. Uh, I'm sure you're going to want to, uh, and you're going to have plenty of comments uh, today. We've got a very special guest. We'll read as many out as we can. We'll get oh, some of them on, on the screen. And um, without further ado, we're just going to introduce, first of all, Paul Waite, the CEO of Aspen Waite. Paul, delight to have you, as always, on the show. And um, And unfortunately, today, um, we need to move on to our special guest straight away. I'm delighted to say... Uh, the ex-South African rugby player Alistair Hargreaves um, is on the show with us today. Um, Alistair, thank you so much for coming on. I'm delighted to have you. No worries, guys. Good to be here. <laughs> now, I want to talk... I know there's going to be so much rugby talk uh, between now and the end of the show, and, and Paul's going to do uh, most of that. But first of all, I really um, just want to talk about what you're doing now because um, you have a business that we work very closely with. And uh, I want you to get the opportunity just to tell everybody what you're doing now and how that works. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of the time, bugger all. And, um, and a lot of the time, <laughs> very, very busy trying to kind of um, navigate the current crisis. So, look, it's been, it's, been, it's been very interesting. And obviously, as everyone knows, it's uncharted territory. So each day comes with its new challenges. But us, we own a, um, a beer brand called Wolfpack, and we supply about 300 bars in the UK, and we own two of our own bars. So essentially, you know, we've we've shut down our business entirely for the foreseeable future. So, you know, we're kind of waiting daily just to see what happens and how we can equip ourselves for when the time does come for the hospitality industry to kind of reopen its doors. So it's it's been it's been scary and it's been fascinating at the same time. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about it. And as Paul, as we, we said uh, a moment ago, we've been working uh, really closely uh, with, with Alistair and um, as, as we do with a, a, a lot of firms. And this is, um, you know, this is something that we're here for at the moment to, to help and support. Absolutely. So I know that you've got many questions for Alistair, some business, some <laughs> well, a lot rugby uh, related. So I'm just going to pass over to you today to, to, to ask the questions. Yeah, so it's interesting. We had um, John O'Harris on the call yesterday, who you uh, met with me once. Uh, you might remember John O comes from Zimbabwe, so uh, right. he was uh, he was reminding me of your of your Durban roots. And um, of course, I hadn't realised actually you were you were the head boy at Durban High School. Which um, so what did you do to deserve that? I was indeed. It was just obviously a very weak very weak year. Not not too many other candidates. You'd have to be able to. <laughs> To read and be able to count to ten, and uh, and you kind of got it. No, so yeah, that was um, yeah, I was at Durban High School uh, back in Durban um, a while back now, and yeah, very lucky to to have been the head boy of the school. Uh, it does seem like a lifetime ago now, but uh, certainly stood me in good stead for some of the leadership positions that I, I kind of found myself in, particularly in in sport in the in my younger years, and now in, in business. So, did you always play um, lock forward, or did you graduate through um, from? Say you know, loose forward up, up upwards. You know, no, it actually the... started uh, bizarrely. Um, so one of my best and closest friends is uh, Brad Barrett, and and uh, yeah, you know Brad Barrett yeah. if you're a rugby fan. And Brad is yeah. Brad and I are primary school together. So really, we I didn't know that. Yeah, when we were 13 years old, we played in the uh, the Durban Prep School under 13 A team. Um, Brad was the hooker. And How was, was he? And <laughs> I was the I was the deft, agile fullback. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, so I was I was I was tall and incredibly skinny, and um, that didn't change much. But I slowly kind of went from fullback 
to eighth man into into the second row where I got stuck for the rest of my career. Yeah, very good. So um, you were actually um, the captain of the Springbok under 19s and 21s, was that right? Yes, that's right. Under um, 19s, we won a world a junior World Cup in my hometown of Dur- of Durban in 2005, I believe. And to be honest with you, it was probably around about this time. How long ago? About 15 years ago now. So a long time ago, but played with some incredible players in that team. Franz Stein was one of them. He was an under 19 team. He's turned out to be a, a double senior World Cup winner, which is uh, fantastic. So we had a lot of great guys um, pass through that junior system. You mean Franz Stein as in the super kicker that plays in France? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So who 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 were the who was the scrum half in that team out of interest? Um, geez, Do you remember? I actually can't. Um, I can't remember. On the twenty-one side was a guy called uh, Yannou Fumark, who was a, a Springbok as well. But yeah. it's interesting to see some some of the guys go through the roof and become international players, and and other yeah. guys play until they're twenty twenty-one and find something else. So it'll be really interesting to see all those guys now, fifteen years later, and see exactly huh. what they were doing. Yeah, and of course, you then went on to uh, play for the Sharks for seven years. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So played for my, my local team in Durban, the Metal Sharks versus the Sales Sharks. And um, and had a really good time. A very different kind of setup to playing in the UK. You know, Durban is 40 degrees in the summer, which where the rugby season yeah. starts. So the first training session would often start at 6 a.m. in the morning. So I'd train at 6 a.m., have a field session. You'd go home at 9 o'clock and wait out the rest of the day while the sun beat down on the, on the, on the stadium and came back to training for a couple of hours in the afternoon at 4 o'clock. So very different lifestyle. Back in Durban. So people, was was John Smith the captain of the Sharks? Is that right? Yes, John was the captain of the Sharks. Um, and yeah, also the spring box, obviously. And the box, exactly. Yeah, John is a, yeah. a, a wonderful uh, influence on my career. So who who were the other great players in that Sharks team? That was, it was actually was Butch, Butch, Butch James the 10 then. Butch James the 10, World Cup winner in 2007. Yeah. Uh, great guy, great character. No, we, we, had some, we had some fantastic players. I think... Um, Bismarck Duplessis was one of the guys who we was always yeah. giving John okay, competition. Yeah. yeah, we played with um, with 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 the Beast, who's now kind of surpassed 100 Test yeah. Cup uh, mark, another World Cup winner. He was beast, a, he beast, was a really beast. outstanding player. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> he was a great guy. Um, Johan Ackerman, the coach of Gloucester now, yeah, played with yeah, him. yeah, absolutely. He was, a, he, he was a lock, wasn't he? He was an absolute monster. Yeah, we have to call him uh, uh, Uncle Johan. And he, was, he was much older and much scarier than us, and he was an old policeman, so we were terrified of him. So you packed down it's, with him, did you? I did on a, on a few on a few yeah. occasions. Yeah, he was there towards the uh, the end. Of, I was there towards the end of his career, but um, yeah. yeah, really, really incredible guy, tough as nails. So, um, what was it like playing against the New Zealand and the Australian teams? Was that uh, very different or special or what? How would you how would you describe that? Yeah. I, I mean, I only got uh, four international caps, but I was lucky enough to count uh, the All Blacks and Australia as as two of those. And um, yeah, incredibly special. I think there's a huge, I mean, particularly in New Zealand, there's a huge rugby culture, but um, but they play a very expansive and interesting type of game that part of the world. So whether it was through Super Rugby or playing international rugby, it was always great touring those places, beautiful places, uh, great places to go spend four or five weeks in tour. And um, and always very 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 tough, but but I think the game was always played in a good spirit. I think you know rugby people understand the ethos and the mantra of what sports all about. So as tough as the games are, we always had a really good time off the field as well, and that's probably the part of rugby that I enjoyed the most, if I'm honest. 
So which which team did you most enjoy playing against in the in the Super Rugby calendar? Probably the who was the worst team at back in the day, the Lions. It, it only says, "Oh, we really." No, enjoyed. no. I said, "Which team? Which team did you enjoy playing?" I said. Yeah, exactly. No, well, the the, the team oh. that was first because we knew we were going to give them seventy points. It's fantastic. <laughs> That's a very cynical. That's a very cynical answer. No, no. I just think everyone always says, "Oh, no, I used to really like the, the tough games. Why? Well, I'd like the easy games. I win by win by sixty <laughs> points, grab a few beers. That was the best." No, but I mean, there, there were teams, uh, teams that I enjoyed playing against. You know, in terms of competition, I think. Uh, we were in an era in Super Rugby where the Crusaders were, were kind of yeah. unstoppable for a while. Really a brilliant team with the McCalls and the Carters of the world. They were yeah. great. Um, the, the the Blue Bulls team, kind of, which was the Victor Matfield, Farid Dupree yeah. uh, era, when they went back-to-back Super Rugby um, championships, they were really, really good. And then um, when I came to the UK, I, I loved playing against the Northampton Saints. We had a really strong rivalry for a few years there in the kind of uh, 2012, 13, 14 season. So, yeah, there have been some brilliant sides that I've had the privilege of playing against in my time. So, um, I suppose it would it would be true to say that Saracens are a bit like um, Springbok United. Um, obviously, a very strong South African influence in uh, in all aspects to do with um, uh, the Saracens team. So, is it, who who actually? Um, sort of first talk to you about going to Saracens? Which of the Saracens people did that? Uh, two of the guys that I, that I mentioned, Brad Barrett and, and, and John Smith. So I think Brad always always loved the Saracens and he always told me about, um, you know, we, we connected often and whenever it was back in Durban, we, we'd catch up. Um, I got to know a lot about the type of club that it was and what they did and how they played the game, which I liked. And then um, I had a, a catch up with John Smith um, a few years before I joined, or maybe about a year before I joined. And John said, "Jesus, if I'd known I'd have this much fun, I would have kind of left sooner." And when I had the <laughs> when I had the opportunity to to go and, and, and play a season at Series, I wasn't quite sure what my future trajectory was looking like with the Sharks in Durban. I thought oh, I'll be go for a season, see what it's like, see if I can kind of get my head around the London lifestyle. And uh, and I've got to say, I I, I loved it. I, I really embraced the culture. And uh, and uh, besides all that's happened, apart from all that's happened in the last kind of six months of Saracens. Uh, I feel incredibly blessed to have been a, a part of the club, and they they did wonders for me. Do you think um, is it is it easy for a South African to mix into English society, or or difficult? What would you say was more true? Uh, um, yeah, interesting question. I mean, I didn't find it particularly hard. Um, I think as a rugby player, particularly, you come into a, a very much a family environment. You know, you work in very close proximity to these people, and you train incredibly hard together and you go through some really rich experiences. So that naturally gives you a, a friendship circle, no matter where you're from. You know, we had a, we had a few Argentinians on our side and uh, Juan Figler and Marcello Bosch, you know, guys from all over the world. When you put them in a team environment, I think it's a, it's a real mechanism to bond. So yeah, I, I felt very included in the kind of uh, the UK social landscape, so to speak from the start. <laughs> I, I love the I love the references to social. So obviously, having fun is uh, quite a big part of your life, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Look, I think certainly when I started playing rugby, it was it was it was a game. You know, it's sports, and you know, you you play your hardest and you train your hardest, but you want to make sure you you make the most of that. And and my view, sometimes to my detriment, was this is not going to last forever. So I've got to make sure that I, I I take every single bit of joy and fun I can out of it. You know, and. Um, and obviously, it's trying to tell that balance between being a consummate professional and making sure you don't push that too far. And I definitely got it wrong at times. But I look back with a, with a wealth of memories, both on the field and, and off the field, which I'm incredibly grateful for. 
And I presume you played in uh, the first of the um, of the Heineken Cup successes, did you? Yes, Same yes. Unfortunately, I didn't play in the final that year. I was still officially the club captain, but I played at the games in the build-up, and then I was injured for the final. Mm. But yeah, I was, was part of the, the squad for that. And uh, yeah, it was an incredible culmination of probably a, a decade's worth of, of, of really hard work and, uh, and perseverance. What was, what was Owen Farrell like to, to play with? Um, I think he epitomizes this new generation of young professionals where, you know, he, he abs- is absolutely passionate about every detail of the game. So he understands his own position and his own role, but he also understands everybody else's roles and what they should be doing. And he can read a game very well. He's a student of, of, a ga- of the game and, um, and certainly works harder than anybody. Well, let me put it this way. There were very few people that I played with that would have worked as hard as Owen did. And of course, um, the owner Nigel Ray, who, um, who who's invested millions of pounds into rugby and the Saracens, has also been very supportive of you as a person, hasn't he? Yeah, Nigel's been fantastic. He's been a great influence on us, and um, I think it's very sad to see um, what has transpired with him and Saracens in the last few months. And of course, there is accountability that needs to be taken. But all I can speak for is from personal experience, Nigel. Um, was an incredible flag bearer for the club. Um, I think the way he handled people, families and players was fantastic. And and obviously, you know, he's been a, a huge support off the field as well. He's an incredibly wise man. He, he's obviously done very well in business. And to have a mentor like that has been uh, beneficial, both from a rugby perspective, but also a, a kind of a, a business perspective as well. Do you think, um, as an ex-player, that there was a bit of a witch hunt against Saracens, or do you think it's justice, which is more relevant? Look, I think when you're at the top of the pile, um, the microscope is on you. So do they? Do, do Saracens deserve the punishment that they got? I think they were wrong, they were found guilty. That speaks for itself. So I think it's fair to say that there should have been uh, punishments and there should have been repercussions. Um but I don't think that it was dealt with very well from, from either side of the spectrum, to be honest with you. I don't think Saracens dealt with it well, and I don't think that the PRL dealt with it very well. So because it was unprecedented, there were kind of new rules, you know, seemed to be put in place mm. every, um, at every step along the line. So, look, ultimately, it was a, I, think, I think it was a disaster, not only for Saracens, but for the, for the game of rugby as a whole. And, um, and, and I think Saracens have started to take accountability for their mistakes. And all I hope that is... At some point in time, once this crisis is over, we start to look at rugby as a whole and what's best for the unions, the players, and the future of the game. And I hope that Saracens can can get back to making a really uh, playing a positive part in the whole ecosystem. Yeah, I think um, leaving aside the sort of um, the technical aspects about whether or whether rules were infringed or not, I think my um, my overall view as a um, a Democrat, actually, a Democrat and a passionate believer in the free market is I can't really understand what's wrong with with one club having more money than another club, for instance. And if you if you look in the world of football, for instance, you know, we're now uh, talking about Manchester United possibly signing Harry Kane for 200 million pounds, you know, which is um, which is uh, a multiply bigger than the, the whole salary cap that's allowed for a premiership rugby club. So I, 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 I personally can't see what's wrong with, you know, some one club having no money, some one club having a bit of money, another club having lots of money, you know. So I, I, I think it's um, uh, the, the rules in themselves aren't right. That's probably how I would put it. 
Yeah, I think there's there's probably a number of views on that. First of all, whether the rules are right or wrong, they are the rules, and everyone subscribes to them. Um, the second point, certainly that the that the the supporters of the salary cap would argue is that the salary cap is put in place for issues of sustainability, long-term sustainability. And I think this COVID virus um, throws that under the spotlight as well. How sustainable is this game with players' salaries rising exponentially year on year, but the game not bringing in a, a, a increasingly uh, or an, an increased amount of revenue? Um, and then I think you've got to look at the advice that Saracen's got in terms of what what consists or what defines a salary? You know, for sure, mm. players were benefiting. Saracen's view was that these players weren't getting paid salaries; they were kind of co-investments. Yeah, and yeah. The, the waters got a little bit a little bit murky there. But look, I think I think uh, as a club, Saracens have accepted uh, their lot in it, and uh, I just think the way that it was dealt with, you know, the the, the initial fine was enormous; it was a five and a half million pound fine, which is um, which is unprecedented in sports. There was the the huge docking mm. of points. I forget it was 30, 25 points or thirty points or whatever. Thirty-five to start with. It was made seventy, I think. Thirty-five points, and then and then what happened? 70, yeah. And then what happened was this this this, and I think a lot of people don't really get their can't get their heads around the fact that they were only found guilty once the season had started. So then, when Saracens tried to offload some players to get under the salary cap, the PRL said, "Well, hang on." If you offload players, that's their salaries that you were going to pay them, or the payouts that you give them still count towards the season salary cap. So when they asked Saracens to open their books, they said, "Well, hang on, guys. First of all, no other clubs have been asked to do a kind of really extensive audit mm-hmm. like this. And secondly, we know that if we open them, because of the rules that you've put in place, we're going to get found guilty anyways. So what's the what's the what's the point? Yeah. You know, let's just accept it and yeah. and try and keep yeah. our heads down and come back in two years' yeah. time better and stronger with a with a new philosophy. So it's a, it's a very layered um, conversation. And I certainly, I empathize with both sides of the argument. So I, I do accept that, that Saracens have, have their, their, a massive part of it. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm wary of, 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 you know, kind of picking sides. But obviously, all I can say from my own perspective is I, I absolutely love the club. I think it has been a huge force for good in terms of player welfare, in terms of elevating the level of rugby in, in Europe. And money alone doesn't buy you culture and it doesn't buy you success, you know. And and I think there's some really, really good things that in, in due course we can start focusing on and learning from that Saracens did well and stop just focusing on the stuff that everyone deems to have been uh, to have been bad. So, yeah, we could probably spend the next three hours talking about that. It's, a, it's, a, okay. it's obviously a very emotive subject. So move it, moving on to a subject which um, I and Aspen Wake generally are um, – heavily involved in which is the subject of concussion uh, and as uh, as i think you know we um we've become increased as a, as a firm we've become increasingly involved in um in uh, rugby uh, over the last few years and are now very fortunate to act for all of the welsh provinces uh, one of the english premiership teams and indeed the welsh rugby union themselves and uh, i'm very pleased to announce that very recently uh, i was able to conclude a uh, significant sponsorship deal with the Welsh Rugby Union, uh, with a with a, a a player program, which I know that I've discussed with you, Alistair, and uh, that sort of thing is quite dear to uh, both our hearts. So one of the things that um, we're going to be doing is um, preparing senior players in in Wales for a for a career uh, after rugby, 
so giving them uh, mentoring in practical business skills like marketing, uh, introduction to finance, all these sort of things. So it's um, it's part of um, a very real desire on my part to to want to give back to the community, and 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 very much like you, you know, I could I could spend hours here talking about times where I've been chucked off the, the team bus naked uh, many miles from home uh, and uh, you know all that sort of stuff that goes with the rugby culture and uh, and, and, and un, unrepeatable stories of my misbehavior at international matches um, so um, we've also because uh, we get very heavily involved in the um, the research and the development side of of rugby we've spent a lot of time on the subject of concussion, for instance. And of course, um, concussion was what basically put pay to your rugby career in the end. In the end. So when did um, when did you first get concussed? What year was that? Do you remember? Um, do I remember? Yeah, good question. Look, I think concussion wasn't a, wasn't a big thing. And certainly in the early 2000s, when I started playing uh, professionally, mm. you know, if you got a, a concussion and it was severe, you might get a couple of days off. You know, there were no real systems in place. There were no metrics in place to measure the severity of concussion and and at, at large it was just done on how do you feel and if it's not kind of keeping you in bed for days and end then and, and toughen up and, and and carry on going i think the first significant concussion that i can remember was actually my uh, my schoolboy days back in at the hs uh durban high school when i was probably about 16 um and then and then only really in the latter start of my uh, latter stages of my career did it start impacting me more and more i found that what was that? What was that? There's a, is a, a ghost running around behind you there. Really? <laughs> that might be the concussion coming back to haunt me. Um, Gosh. But uh, no, look, I think um, I think I, the more I got concussed, the more I lost my propensity to be able to handle contact. So at first, you know, one of my first uh, concussions, I think it was um, uh, James Haskell kind of caught me with a high shot mm. back at Vicarage Road and I stretched it off the field and was fine and, and kind of got over the symptoms in a couple of days and was, was good to go in seven days' time. Mm-hmm. But then I found that I was getting concussed and I was getting knocked out at, at like incidents that were quite innocuous. And towards the end of my career, uh, I, had, I had a six-month layoff from rugby just because I had these repeated concussions. And I came back, trained for a few weeks, and then a good friend of mine, I ran into a good mate of mine, Michael Rhodes, at, at, at a training session, kind of glanced his elbow. And I just was completely out like a light. And I just thought, hang on, this, this is not worth it. You know? um, and I started being, I, I stopped relishing the, the challenge of playing a game. And I started being a little bit fearful about what the yeah. repercussions of another knock you know, might, might have on, on my life post-rugby. And that's when I was like, okay, hang on, enough's enough. I've had a great career. It's time to be sensible. Think about the family. Think about the future. And crack on to you know, what comes next. So um, obviously, what next? What came next um, was uh, you forayed into business and became the uh, owner of a microbrewery, uh, notably with uh, Chris Wiles. Who um, I think the, th- the thing that strikes me the most about uh, both of you, actually, from my perspective, is um, probably um, if it was, it was the far show. Now, I don't know if you remember that Harry Enfield would say, "You're bloody nice blokes," you know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and you know, I, I think you know you could you could actually say insufferably cheerful or something. You know, uh, I, I remember my first impressions of Chris because I obviously knew you first. Um, were just uh, how how decent and humble and uh, keen to learn he was. You know, um, oh no, he's not. He's not that. He's not that nice. 
it's all an act. I know you don't believe that. No, I, th- I think, you know, it's, yeah, we were very lucky to set up our own business. And, and I think it's through a uh, generous contribution of, of guys like yourself and, and Aspen White that allowed us to get into a position where we were surrounded by good people and we had good advice and we were able to create a business off the back of our rugby careers. And, and just to go back to your comment about the work you do with rugby and, and in sport in particular, I think it's fantastic because in this era of professionalism, when players are told from the age of 16, if you want to be a professional rugby player, you have to dedicate every single waking hour of your life to the game. It's very hard for people to get their head out of the sand and to start realizing the impact of you know, not having any skills outside of rugby and what that might have on, on later life. So I think that by bringing players into the work environment, by giving them these extra skills, I think it's, 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 it's not only valuable, but I think it's, it's vital. And the other side of that is we need businesses to want to have the appetite to, to help sports people. Um, certainly not to give them uh, things on a platter because I don't buy into this narrative that because you played sport for 10 years we've now got to feel sorry for you that you retired I, I think I'm not, yeah, of, um, yeah. I'm not, allowed, I'm not sure if I'm right to say it but I, I, I quite frankly think it's bullshit a lot of the time you know <laughs> I feel like dur- dur- during, the, during the 10 or 15 years while you're professional you've got to surround yourself with people that can teach you things you know and give yourself a platform to be able to move into something new but it does, does take businesses to to take a leap of faith and and you guys have been fantastic to to myself and chris and wolfback and uh and and over the last three weeks as we've tried to navigate our way through uh covid19 um your support has been has been immense thank you um it's, it's quite interesting actually about um i suppose you know one of the things that um i'm reminded by when uh, I, I deal with various different players is, is, is different attitudes. So if we take Dan Bigger, for instance, the current Welsh fly half, uh, he's very uh, opposed to um, the, the player development programme. Not not in totality, but uh, he's very much a superstitious chap and he thinks that the minute he starts thinking about uh, life after rugby, he's going to go and get injured or something, you know? So it's funny how you do get players like him who, um, you know, who... Uh, who perhaps uh, very much are living for the minute and 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 aren't sitting there being very practical and saying right you know I'm going to prepare uh, for the life that's surely going to come. Yeah, and I think that's a very it's a very much a, a cultural thing in all sports. Is I say you've got to dedicate every waking second to to your profession, and sure there might be an argument that that might get an extra five percent out of you as a player, but from the perspective of somebody started a business during my rugby career, what I could argue, hey buddy, I'm just speaking <laughs> to my friend. <laughs> I'm speaking to Uncle Paul right. on the uh, on the phone. Here we go. Got the little cretins running around trying yeah, to you know, play the piano in the background and distract me. Um, That's why it's live. Exactly. Uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, so I, I'd argue that as opposed to being a distraction, I think there's a lot of freedom in knowing that you are more secure post-rugby and that allows the time that you spend at the training ground to be kind of more single-minded and focused, you know. I think if you're sitting awake late at night thinking, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? That's going to take a toll on you somewhere. So I'd, I'd almost argue that having sideline interests, you know, in the right, uh, I suppose in the right way and at the right times, actually makes you a better rugby player. How do you think that your, your and Chris's um – talent as rugby players has stood you in good stead for a business career what are the qualities that have um, helped you do you think it's probably a lot of the um 
the cliche things that people say about playing a team sport, but I think you, you, you do learn discipline. I think you, you, you have to learn interpersonal skills very quickly. Mm-hmm. And all players, I think, are incredibly ambitious. You know, so if you want to play for a, um, for a top-class rugby team or even your first you know, rugby club team, you've got to be an ambitious person. You've got to want it more than the person next to you. So those kind of skills, I think, certainly do translate. And, um, you know, the, the question is, and the question that was posed to us by business people that we asked, you know, we said the same thing. Well, are you attracted by, you know, the thought of having a rugby player work for you? A lot of them said, absolutely. Those skills mm. are in a short abundance in the business world. We need them. But unless you've displayed those skills away from the rugby environments, no real use to us. So our, our mindset was, okay, so how do we try and, you know, trial a few different things? So at least we've got some experiences. So we can sit in front of business people like yourself at some point and say, well, I tried this, I got it wrong and I learned this. I tried this, I got it long, wrong and I learned mm-hmm. this. I did this okay, um, but here's one more round of person. So now I've got the rugby skills, but I've also got some understanding of what happens in the real world. Yeah, I think um, apart from all the um, all the things you said, which I totally agree with, I think um, you know one of the things which I think I, hopefully I engender as well uh, as an ex-player is I think the, the thing that you can count on when you're dealing with rugby players is is the word trust. You know, you can you can trust uh, the bulk of players to do the right thing. You know, that's why one of the one of the reasons that I'm uh, uh, so, for instance, you know, with 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 the the Aspen weight program with the Welsh Rugby Union, uh, I can't really force the players uh, to sign up with me when they finished. But what I what I would rather hope is they'd sit there and say, well, that bloke was really decent and I owe him one, you know. Uh, and I think that sort of that sort of attitude is is much more prevalent amongst rugby players than it would, you know, most other groups. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think again, what I love about um, rugby in the in the UK is just the uh, the community behind it and and the the ethos of the game. And I think it, it is very much based on on principles that I'd like to teach my my children. And it is about togetherness and it's about you know it is about trust it's about hard work it's about sociability it's about families and i think all those um you know all those core values are are, are really important and i think rugby epitomizes a lot of the a lot of those core traits that are probably missing in, in some parts of society yeah i agree with that so obviously over um the fairly brief period that um uh, your your company has been in existence now you've 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 enjoyed Fairly, fairly rapid growth, I would say. Um, you know, neo hockey stick growth. It's, um, it's, 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 it's a good product. Uh, it tastes nice. People like it. I think um, they're relevant products as well. I think they're very much in keeping with the sort of, the sort of beer and lager that people want to be drinking these days. Um, so, what does the future hold for for Alistair Hargreaves and Wolfpack? You know, what what's uh, what's what's the the vision and and, and the aims now? Um, yeah, I guess when we look at what Wolfpack stands for, I mean, going back to, to where we started was just pouring beer out of a double-decker bus at the Saracens Rugby <laughs> Stadium. Yeah. Uh, we chose the name Wolfpack because that's what Saracens, you know, kind of the team yeah. nickname was and defense, uh, you know, yeah. Wolfpack, and we thought, oh, this will be fun. Um, we've now owned two bars, as I said earlier. We supply about 300 bars in the UK. But what we really want to do is, is drive that rele- relevancy that you mentioned. So what does Wolfpack stand for away from the rugby field? Well, it does stand about all those things that I've discussed, which is sociability. It's about togetherness. It's about community. It's about mutual bonds. 
and it's about this 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 thought of working hard and playing hard you know having having an off switch and and that's where we come into it so we want to sell beer that people want to drink um by the letter of the law we are we are craft beer small batch and all that kind of stuff but we think a lot of craft beer is pretty pretentious and inaccessible so we try to make a really good lager that you can have three or four of rather than one 10 percent double hop chocolate chili start that you have in the uh, the corner <laughs> of your mother's basement and yeah, we yeah. want to encourage people to get together and enjoy it in packs rather than individuals so our message and i think it's never been more prevalent now whilst we're under lockdown is that as society as people we are social animals and we are better together and we want to create touch points for people to get together and you know, connect in the mindset of like, okay, well, geez, this life is so much more enjoyable when you've got to buy in with other people and we share our lives with everybody else. So we want to be a vehicle for that and we want to do it in a Wolfpack way, which we think is modern, it's edgy, it's cool, it's fun, and it's a, it kind of thrives on really interesting and remarkable experiences. So do you, do, you, do you see your ultimate destiny as being a national brand or very much one revolving around sort of greater London? Yeah, I think at some point, I mean, we do distribute, we have quite a few outlets outside of London that we supply beer to. We'd like to open up more bars in London. And then we look at these as what we call like the modern local or urban clubhouses. You know, and I think, yeah. again, really good touch points for the brand as a whole. People can go and understand what Wolfpack, Wolfpack's about, have a, a real kind of touch point in the real world. I think bricks and mortars, as things go more and more online, there's this desire to actually want to have real experiences. So that's important. And then we want to see how we can can broaden that and translate that. So we'd like to kind of, I, I guess, the, the old school way of thinking would be, you know, vertically integrated model where we brew beer, we sell it to distributors, and we also sell it to our own bars. Um, and we'd like to make sure that Wolfpack plays really a good role in the future of communities and does what the old local pubs used to do. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting. You know, the 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 message that resonates from you as a person and and. Uh, has come out very much in this um, in the show today. You know the 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 social you know the social aspect of Alistair Hargreaves and uh, and how important um, community is to you. I think those are the things I would take out of today. Yeah, I mean that 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 certainly is, is the case. And and I think, like I said, I think that when you think about what this lockdown does, I mean we get to see our families and you know our immediate families and you know most of us are the privileged you know, part of us, you know, have enough to be able to hopefully pay rent and get food and stuff. But well, what what are we missing? Well, we're just missing the ability to go out our doors and chat to the neighbors, you know, ability to meet at a restaurant or a pub or go to the park and see our friends. And um, and I think that that kind of, that, that's the thing that's really missing. And, and that's the thing that I think a lot of us are yearning for. It's just that social connection. And in an age of social media, everyone living on their phones and everyone living online, I think that's more and more important. Oh, excellent. So um, I think um, I'm very mindful of the time. So I think we've, um, you know, we've we've gone very nicely on our journey from A to Z today. And uh, I think your insight into, um, well, for, my, for me personally, it's been a, a very enjoyable experience talking to you about, uh, about your career and your life, uh, both uh, in your formative years uh, now, as, as I've got to know you quite well as an individual, uh, as a business owner. Um, and I think um, a very principled one as well. And I, I, for what it's worth, I, I would be very optimistic about your future. Thanks, Paul. No, I appreciate that. It's been uh, it's been really good chatting. And uh, and again, I think you guys are doing some some fantastic things in supporting businesses, but also 
looking out for the future of, of, of sports people in general. I think it's a very, uh, a very worthy cause. So thank you for your effort as well. Over to you, Ben. I'm sure you've got a few things to say to Alistair before we finish. Well, I've, I found that uh, fascinating. I could have just sat here and, and listened to you two talking um, all, all afternoon. So, um, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been a pleasure, as I say, to have you on, Alistair. It's been great to listen. I'm sure everyone has been really intrigued by what you've had to say. There were a number of times that I wanted to come in and ask some questions, uh, especially when you were talking around finance and sport. But I just found the whole thing uh, fascinating. I do want to ask you a different question, though, because... We're about to launch our Aspen Weight radio station. And mm-hmm. Paul, on this show and on our podcast every week or every day now, chooses a song. And I was, I'm always fascinated by uh, professional uh, sportsmen and women and, and what they kind of, you know, the rituals around music and what kind of what, what songs really were prevalent in their careers or really got them going or something you listened to before games or were just a real big part of of the sort of journey through rugby? Oh, interesting question. Um, you know what? Like a lot of guys, you'd, you'd imagine, well, I can imagine get super sucked up before a, a game of rugby and put on headbanging stuff and the louder <laughs> the better. And I always liked, um, liked the, the, the mellow stuff. Weirdly enough, I know this is, this, is, this is very obscure, but like going back to the under-19 World Cup days, I remember I used to listen to a lot of bread like I just, oh, yeah. I, just yeah. I was just like very weird yeah. thing before rugby game. There's this dude sitting listening to all these soft old songs, but I just oh, yeah. kind of felt like with all the intensity that it's happening in the change room and before a game, something, something you know that's a little bit more downbeat, like soothed me and allowed me to focus on the role I had to perform on the pitch. So it was always like the the, the quieter stuff that allowed me to just kind of zone into my own aura and what I had to do on the day that helped me uh, get me going. If I was into head thrashing, you know, like rock and roll, I, I, I tend to get a little bit distracted by everything and run on the field and do something stupid in the first five minutes. Did some, <laughs> did some of the teams that you uh, were involved in, did they, did, were there any songs synonymous? I mean, for, so for example, in football, I think Sweet Caroline is played in lots of dressing rooms, yeah. lots of games. It's a, it's a big sort of football anthem. Is, was there anything at the time that was, was quite big that the team would do after games or... I don't know. Well, we had a Saracen song that we used to sing, which is more of like a war cry chant. But I wouldn't say we had a team song per se. Uh, you can find it all over YouTube. There's a um, there's a teammate of ours, Richard Barrington. He always used to hold a little sing song whenever he won a big game and stuff. And he, I mean, he's, a, he's the world's you know worst singer by country, but um, <laughs> but a, a massive a, a massive character. And he kind of get in the middle of this this team huddle. And sing all the sing-alongs that you'd know with what he'd like to call a remix. Change up the words and you jump from one to the other. So if you want to see a bit of, you know, a bit of terrible singing and, and good team culture, Google Richard Barrington Saracens and uh, see the sing-alongs that we used to do in the change room. That was, uh, that was always pretty fun. Of course, Richard Barrington was a prop, or is a prop, actually. I think still is a prop. Still is, um, yeah. And uh, for, for uh, to make it relevant, so... Uh, my good mate JP uh, was a prop and uh, continued to play until he was about 45, if I remember rightly. Uh, most latterly for Stother and Pitt, which is a uh, Bristol combination side. Uh, so, um, yeah. Brave man. So just to, <laughs> before yeah. we let Paul uh, reveal his song uh, for today... I just wanted to ask you a little just about your own music taste now. I'm sure they've changed over the years. What do you find yourself listening to when you get a quiet moment to put some music on? 
Um, yeah, well, we because we because we had kind of entertainment, hospitality, we we kind of get play our own music in the, in our bars and stuff. But um, what I'm listening to at the moment is Future Islands. So that's probably my favorite band. There's a band called Tame Impala. Um, a kind of alternative, alternative rock. Tame Impala's got a new album that I think is is absolutely superb. Uh, Bombay Bicycle Club have got a new album, which is pretty cool. So yeah, I kind of like, if I look at my Spotify list, it's like kind of new indie stuff and alternative stuff. Try, you know, I've got to have some edge to me as a, as a, as a craft brewer, right? Well, well, we'll certainly make sure that um, there's something on there that you'll love on Aspen Weight Radio. Uh, when we launch in a couple of weeks. Uh, Paul, this is a great time for you to introduce your track. If you're listening on the podcast, you're going to get this played uh, in a moment. And if you're not, we always encourage you to, um, of course, go and listen to it at some point this afternoon. And Paul is going to reveal what that track is now. So on our A to Z, of, we're doing an A to Z of pop, Alistair. So when I start my radio show, I'm doing an A to Z uh, of music. And um, so I've, I've got a playlist of about 350 songs. So um, I'm actually quite pleased with the one I've chosen today. We've got to H um, and it's um, quite cerebral. So it's uh, we've, we've played some quite heavy stuff, you know, and some quite rocky stuff. And uh, I thought we got to H today and um, I, I thought we'd have uh, The Windmills of Your Mind by Noel Harrison, which is uh, which is like um, a poem put to music, I would say, a beautiful, a, a beautiful piece of poetry uh, put to music. Uh, just out of interest, uh, for those of you who didn't know, Noel Harrison himself was the son of Rex Harrison of My Fair Lady fame. Uh, Dr. Doolittle would be another uh, famous film that, that he was in. Uh, Noel Harrison himself was uh, in the British bobsleigh team um, in two Winter Olympics, I think. So uh, we're keeping the, the sporting theme going there. Uh, enjoyed uh, worldwide success with this particular song, which I say is... Um, it's quite a short song, but it's uh, beautifully crafted with lovely words. And I, I thought it would be a nice, nice song to end the week. Yeah, great song. I shall, dedic- I shall dedicate it to uh, to our good friend from Durban, uh, who is now um, very much a centre part of getting people drunk in London. <laughs> and hopefully again but- soon. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, not, not, not drunk, you know, this is, this is, this is 2020. We don't oh, get happy. drunk. We, 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 get, we get happy. We get merry. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting community spirited. That's what he's doing. No, yeah. no, no, no overindulgence. My mistake. Well, listen, this, this has been uh, so fascinating to uh, watch and, and listen to. Um, thank you ever so much, Alistair, for coming on. We've really appreciated your time and um, listening to your to your stories. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for your help. Nice chatting, and thank you for the support. And uh, and Paul, as always, thank you for your time. Uh, Paul and I'll be back uh, on Monday. Don't forget, if you haven't already, please, please, please. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, hit the bell, you get notified whenever we go live and we go live every day at half past 12. If you're listening on the podcast, we hope you've enjoyed it this week. So much happened uh, on the podcast. You can catch up with all of them if you've missed any. Uh, You can subscribe to the podcast as well. Have a wonderful weekend as best as you can. And we'll see you back here on Monday at 12.30. See you then. Like a circle in a spiral, like a wheel within a wheel, never ending or beginning on an ever spinning reel. Like a snowball down a mountain, or a carnival balloon, like a carousel that's turning, running rings around the moon. Like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face, and the world is like an apple, whirling silently in space, like the circles that you find. 
windmills of your mind Like a tunnel you can follow To a tunnel of its own Down a hollow to a cavern Where the sun has never shone Like a door that keeps revolving In a half-forgotten dream Or the ripples from a pebble Someone tosses in a stream Like a clock whose hands are sweeping Past the minutes of its face And the world is like an apple Whirling silently in space Like the circles that you find In the windmills of your mind Keys that jingle in your pocket Words that jangle in your head Why did summer go so quickly? Was it something that you said? Lovers walk along the shore And leave their footprints in the sand Was the sound of distant drumming Just the fingers of your hand Pictures hanging in a hallway And the fragment of a song I've remembered names and faces But to whom do they belong? When you knew that it was over, you were suddenly aware That the autumn leaves were turning to the color of her hair A circle in a spiral, a wheel within a wheel Never ending or beginning, on an ever-spinning reel As the images unwind, like the circles that you find In the windmills of your mind